0: Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, brought to you by the team from the environmental policy magazine, The Ends Report. In this episode, we're going to be examining why staff are leaving the environment agency in droves. We'll look at those planned environmental targets again, this time asking why the government's being so coy about showing its workings. And then we're going to give the government's new energy security strategy a good going over. Then you'll all be thrilled to hear Jamie has resurrected the top of the poops quiz. And as swiftly moving on after that, Jamie and I are going to take a deep dive into the. Latest developments in the move to make ecocide an international law. Then the Chemical Brothers, Gareth and Simon, they'll be along to make you rethink your relationship with your carpet. So without further ado, let's enter the Eco Chamber. I'm Rachel Salvage, Deputy Editor of the ENDS Report, and as usual, I'm here with our editor Jamie Carpenter. Hello. And journalist Tess Colley. Hello. First up, we're going to look at the big green news of the fortnight. Our first story is about the beleaguered Environment Agency. I'm lucky to have earned the trust of a few Environment Agency officers who speak to me under condition of anonymity. Unfortunately for them, they have to keep their identities hidden because the chief executive, James Bevan, has threatened with a the sack if they speak to the media. Yes, this is 21st century Britain, in case you're wondering. But anyway, last week I spoke to a couple of new uh, people from the agency and this time they're very worried. They're worried about the number of officers leaving the agency, because they simply can't afford to work there. The cost of living crisis obviously has made things even worse, and some people are leaving to go to work at environmental consultancies or places like supermarkets instead, I've been told. So you'd think that the agency would want to help Steph out, but it looks like uh, its hands are tied. Is, is that right, Jamie?
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, I, th- I think there's um, there, there's certainly an issue around cost of living that that's affecting everyone at the moment. So, so things like fuel costs, sort of inflation, stuff like that is not... not, not kind of unique to the environment agency one of the things that that struck me sort of looking at looking at these these stories of the, the salaries that that people are on at the environment agency mean that, that that staff are going to be squeezed probably more than elsewhere i mean i thought they might well, get fired for saying this but i thought the salaries at haymarket were bad but this is kind of completely different. <laughs> <laughs> different level.
0: it is i think they're one of the um the lowest the entry grade i think is Is just over £18,000. Similar things are happening at at Natural England, aren't they, Tess? Yes,
2: they are. I was going to say, I mean, that there's a low band when you talk about 18,000, the lowest starting band. I think they're only pipped by Natural England who are um, in a similar situation. The staff there, there's a... Staff at Prospect Union who are taking industrial action at the moment, um, which could yet go to strike action. We'll have to see. But yeah, they, they very similar story, really. People, you know, having to take second jobs or going into debt because they, 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 they can't afford to do their jobs, which is terrible, really. And like Jamie said, it, it's, you know, this cost of living crisis is affecting people across all sectors. But I think part of the story here is it's been going on for ages anyway. And, there's only more and more environmental policy coming out and more things that these people are going to have to do especially the people on the front line like you say needing like fuel costs and all this sort of thing yes. um yeah and they're just get, getting hit, hit again and again and again and they're looking around and you know yeah the other consultancies or even other parts of the DEFRA group I mean the Forestry Commission pays much better than certainly Natural England or or in the Environment Agency I think that that leaves a bad feeling in a lot of people's mouths.
0: Well, I think that um, environment agencies somewhat have their hands tied a little bit, they're saying, because the Cabinet Office said that they can't award, Government Department can't award their agencies pay um, increase of anything more than 3%, and they could only do with 3%, because everything else has to be around 2 I think, but you can only do a 3% under exceptional circumstances. But the union, Unison is arguing that, the EA's wages in real terms have dropped by about 21% over the last 10 years. And so it wants a 10% increase, a consolidated increase, which it says would be the retail price index rate of inflation plus an extra 2.5%. And that's what they're, they're kind of going to hold their ground on. But I don't know whether it's going to result in any action. I think as, as well with all the, the other stuff that's going on at the agency, the morale there is really low. We've written lots of stories about how agency officers can't do the jobs that they're employed to do because they don't have the resources. And this is all on top of, you know, low salaries and sort of feeling undervalued. I think this is a a really sad place for the agency to be in. And now also the future is looking a little bit uncertain at both agencies as well. I mean, there's going to be a review of them. Can you tell me a little bit more about that?
2: Yes. So, well, DEFRA has said it's looking to do a a review of all its arm's length bodies. This was a kind of, this was in the the nature recovery green paper that came out a few weeks ago and it remains to be seen what exactly it's going to mean if it's going to mean some sort of new kind of merging of who knows the ea and, and natural england or some super quango or, or if it's going to be a rearranging of the deck chairs we're not sure yet uh, but it's it, like you say an uncertain future for people working there because i suppose a fear for a lot of them will it will it ultimately mean more cuts at the end of the day yeah
0: i mean they've been here a number of times over the years though the same old arguments are there should the flood functions be removed from the environment agency and the environment agency be focused more on kind of being an environmental protection agency um you know should they merge with natural england as you say to become a super quango i like that word Mm -hmm. um or you know or something else altogether whatever happens if there was going to be wholesale change of the environment agency the, the legislation to underpin that and that wouldn't come around until about 2025 anyway so it's mm. it's quite a way off um but apparently environment secretary george eustace is going to make a decision on what if any changes there will be by, before the summer so that'll be interesting to watch
2: yeah i mean it doesn't ha- it doesn't necessarily have to mean a bad thing i suppose because um, there's a lot to be said for there's a lot of crossover and to make things like the new environmental land management schemes work you really do probably need them working better together than they currently do yeah, I agree. It does seem strange with things like water
0: having Natural England and the Environment Agency. Natural England, you'd think, would have more involvement in water from the habitats perspective, but obviously, yeah, so maybe that would be another area they could work more closely together. So, moving on, our next story is about environmental targets. So, the last couple of episodes of the Eco Chamber, we've looked at the government's 12 proposed new environmental goals for improving air quality, water quality, nature, and so on. Um, and let's just say, well, the general consensus is that they've fallen well short of where they need to be. We're not going to go into that. If you want to hear more on that, you can look at the previous couple of episodes. i have gone into that in quite a lot of depth. What we're interested in today is the peculiar manner in which DEFRA is going about uh, consulting on these targets. Clearly, you'd think if you were setting plans to sort of reduce population exposure to particulate matter or something like that, you would have some hardcore data sets and loads of modelling. Um, that you could then show people how you come to this conclusion that this is the right target.
2: But it hasn't happened that way to us, has it? It certainly hasn't, Rachel. Um, yeah, it's quite a strange one, really. It's this big consultation, as you say. Everyone was waiting for these targets uh, after the Environment Act. They're meant to be a really big deal, and they published them. Uh, And the evidence packs that underpin all the proposals, we still don't have them. And in the consultation, it said, you know, these are going to be published shortly. Why they weren't ready to go at the same time as the consultation, who knows? Because surely the, the, the evidence was there and ready for when they drafted them. But they're not. And there's been all sorts of back and forth between... Well, I don't know if we can call it back and forth. There's been all sorts of disquiet from green groups because, you know, they've been calling for this, this evidence to come forward. And it's not come. It's six weeks now since the, the launch of the consultation. And they're saying, well, we need an extension because, if, you know, we haven't got these, this information.
0: Mm. What Steph was saying? What's the reason for, the, for not publishing the evidence reports?
2: They are large and complex, Rachel. <laughs> well,
0: wow. I would imagine they will be. Why aren't they publishing them? Surely that's already before
3: now.
2: Yeah, I mean, they—they—it's they, it's really strange. So that they, DEFRA won't give a formal—well, so far. The, the, the press office wouldn't give me a formal comment. However, I was, I was in a, a, an event a couple of days ago and Rebecca Powell, the Nature Recovery Minister, did say there will be an extension. So we, that seems to be confirmed now. Um, they're going to extend it, but we don't still know when they're extending it to or when they're going to publish these this evidence and the impact assessments and the meeting minutes uh, that back it all up. And apparently we'll know when it's been extended to, once all of that is out. So what are Green Groups saying about, about all this missing evidence? Well, they, they think it's pretty ridiculous, really, uh, mm. that it's not ready. Mm. Uh, but Client Earth have been p- going for this, particularly they're a, an environmental, a legal environmental group. I spoke to Carl Shaku who, who does their UK work, and he, he was pretty much saying, well, I'll believe it when I see it, when I actually see on the online kind of consultation page, when that says a new date on it, that's 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 what they want to see. And it's still I checked just before we we uh did this recording that this still it still says it will close on the eleventh of May, which is in a couple of weeks, and there's all this information. Mm. Um Rebecca Powell assured us all in this event the other day that they were not drawn up at random.
0: Yeah, I mean is there a world in which Jeffra might have pulled these targets from their own from their own behinds, rather than rather than than, yeah, yeah, than, than gone to the science. I mean, I find that really hard to believe. But I can't think why else they're delaying it.
1: It sounds like it sounds like a uh, kind of a textbook case of what they call it policy based evidence making or something.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Making the science fit the targets retrospectively.
1: It's amazing, isn't it? Like I think I think as Tess is saying, you you have this. Um, confirmation from the minister that the the consultation is going to be extended and I, th- I think i think teshi wrote about that there was a stakeholder meeting that was back on the 6th of april where where people were told that the consultation has been ex- it's going to be extended but those those documents still still aren't there it's absolutely i'd yeah. love to know what's kind of going on behind the scenes
0: yes yeah, it's, it's been very odd they weren't keen to tell you either were they i mean you knew before they would admit to you that there was going to be an extension i know and
2: why so coy i said look your 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 officials have told everyone mm. this i just want a confirmation and they they wouldn't. Mm. So, well, the minister said it now in a in a, in a forum. Yeah. So you'd think that would that would do it, but mm. we'll see. There's also the environmental principles policy statement.
0: It would be great if you could just give us an overview of what that is, and because it's pretty crucial stuff.
2: Yeah. So the the environmental principles policy statement, which is a mouthful, but that was um, written into the requirement for that was written into the Environment Act. And that's meant to underpin policymaking across government, not just DEFRA, but including DEFRA. Um, and it in, includes uh, principles like, you know, the precautionary principles, some pretty important ones. And that was meant to, that's meant to be consulted on uh, and put Labour before Parliament. And then, you know, that's meant to inform to policy that's made. It was consulted on last March, that closed last June, and no one's seen it since, which is not really what was meant to happen. And... Yes, as green green groups are saying. Well, where is this thing? And in the target consultation, in particular, it says that you know targets must be made and be consistent with the environmental principles. But how can they be consistent with something that apparently hasn't even been finalised? That's quite it's quite a fundamental thing, and it, it, yeah, it goes across government. You know, the, even cutting red tape, the Brexit freedoms bill that was trailed at the start of the year, all of that you know could have environmental implications, and they should be. Paying due regard to these principles, but we don't have any. Yeah,
1: yeah. I think it sounds like we need to sort of send Colombo into into Defra to find out what's going on. <laughs> but I mean, I think I think there's I think there's <laughs> generally you're hearing about there, there's a lot of um, a backlog. Sort of th- things are taking a long time to get through. Generally in government due to things like COVID and, and now the the kind of Ukraine crisis and and whether whether that's whether there's that that's the kind of reason behind it or whether whether there's something kind of slightly more sinister going on. I wouldn't like to speculate, but um, it's, it's certainly uh, it's certainly a lot of questions to be to be answered and, and, and a lot of really important stuff that we're waiting for at the moment.
0: We will come back to this. Obviously, it's an ongoing and incredibly important issue, so we will get uh, back on this shortly. And for a final uh, story in the Big Green News section, it's uh, the fact that the government published its energy security strategy earlier this month, um, it sets out commitments to decarbonize the electricity grid by around 95% by 2030, which sounds incredible, including increasing hydrogen, solar, nuclear and offshore wind power generation. So it's essentially a response to Putin's invasion of Ukraine, but has the added bonus of fast tracking some low carbon electricity generation. And I think at first glance, it looks really good. But then you look a little bit closer and you hear what uh, the experts have to say. And it's never straightforward, is it? Um Jamie, could you give me a little bit of a rundown of of what's in the strategy
1: yeah, i mean I, th- I think some people have have kind of made a made a comment um saying that for an energy security strategy. It doesn't really have a lot to say about security, and it's not particularly strategic. <laughs> um,
0: there's so, energy in it, though. You give that.
1: There is energy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I think there there are a couple of a couple of. I mean, there are a few issues. But one one I think that's kind of one of the issues that was raised fairly fairly soon after it was published was that it doesn't have a lot to say about energy efficiency. Mm. So I think a lot of experts see energy efficiency measures like like, I like, building insulation, that sort of stuff, as a way there's a really quick and cheap way of reducing energy costs but but um it doesn't really say anything about that and, and the, the kind of options that it favours are kind of more expensive and will take longer to to make an impact. It also doesn't really say much about onshore wind, so there's no there's no kind of big headline target in the way that there is for offshore wind, but there, there there's kind of a, a scheme around offering a limited number of communities lower electricity bills in exchange for supporting local wind farms so so there's there's a few criticisms but it's not to say that there aren't kind of big and important changes in in the document The, 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 the kind of i think for me the most interesting area is offshore offshore wind
0: a lot of the things have sort of planning reforms attached as a as a way of actually help, help making it happen is is that going to create more problems do you think
1: yeah well i mean i think i think the the, the the planning reform stuff is 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 really interesting. I think we we did a um a webinar about a year ago about when the when the offshore wind target was only was well, still a lot forty gigawatts by twenty thirty and um, and there there are a couple of things that came out of that one one was the fact that the way that offshore wind farms are connected to the the grid is not particularly sustainable because that they're they've been done on a kind of point by point point to point basis so you end up with a lot of kind of landings on on the shore which isn't really great for local communities so there was a kind of there's a discussion around what to do about that and then the other thing around that's a really kind of interesting point is this kind of clash between offshore wind being really important in terms of tackling the climate crisis but then there, there being huge biodiversity impacts of building big offshore wind farms and, and how do you resolve that and, and I think the, the the government's kind of saying you, you can do that you, you can s- somehow strike a, a an incredibly well-judged balance between kind of cutting the process time by over half in order to build these things but also do that in a way that maintains environmental standards which um sound, sounds great it does <laughs>
0: sounds sounds great in practice Tessy, have you with your sort of biodiversity hat on you know what do people like the
2: rspb and uh, others saying about increases in offshore wind it's interesting, like just what going on, what Jamie was saying there. There's a lot of similar language when they're talking about the planning reforms, uh, as in the Nature Green Paper, talking about streamlining the process around the habitats regulations and. Making environmental considerations at a more strategic level, which is things that, that environmental, you know, groups have been quite concerned about. That kind of language never tends it's a to. Code
0: for we'll do what we want to do. It,
2: yeah, it means we'll look less at this. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think the RSPB in particular, they, they've got a few campaigns around offshore wind because obviously they that the turbines do have negative impacts on bird populations and on, and on the seabed for marine life. It's a real conflict, I think, for, for some from nature conservation groups, because, you know, you, they don't want to get in stand in the way of renewable energy. But at the same time, it's a really, it's a very difficult line to tread.
1: I think it's kind of interesting that the sort of stuff that Tess was saying around strategic considerations um, or sort of making environmental considerations at strategic level is, is kind of interesting in terms of the kind of clues it gives you about the direction of reform on around environmental impact assessment and strategic environmental assessment because the the um the planning white paper which was i think 2020 that 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 talked about that sort of stuff so so the idea would be that rather than looking at environmental factors on a, on a project by project basis that you'd look at them on a more strategic way and this is this is very much the same language and i think that that's kind of interesting in that um we did wonder with the with the planning bill being dropped whether these these things would actually Fall away as, as as ideas, but actually, with, with what this is saying, and also with what the um, the nature recovery green paper was saying, it does seem that this EIA reform is still very much on the, on the table. I don't know quite what the timescale is, but it's still what the government, still clearly, the government is wanting to to do this at some point.
2: Yeah, from what I understand, the bits bits of the planning bill are likely to reemerge in the levelling up paper before the summer recess. Can't say which bits necessarily, but
0: <laughs> come on, have we got the inside track for us? Um.
2: <laughs> no, I, no one, nobody knows. I don't even think the government knows for sure. Um, it's gone imagine. through so many. Mm. Yeah, so I, I couldn't. I, <laughs> I wouldn't want to preempt it.
0: Um, and, and on the um, all the while, there's this North Sea licensing round that's going to happen shortly, which is going to try and you know get more oil and gas out of the, of the North Sea, which just Seems to sort of undermine everything that we're doing, anyway. Or is it just pragmatism? What do you think, Jamie?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's um, it it does it does certainly what's been going on with um, Ukraine has has, I think well, the most the most kind of polite way I could put it is kind of sort of reopened a debate about about those sorts of things that that seem to have been closed only a few months ago. Um, so so maybe maybe it it's pragmatism, but I think there's probably a lot of concerns around whether that's the the right thing to do.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's all very exciting. I'd say we'd revisit these issues as they develop, but as it's so far off, I don't know whether we'll all be here in 2030 or to give you the latest on it, but let's just (laughs) play it by ear, shall we? Uh, Moving on, we are at the quiz, the quiz section of our Big Green News element. Jamie has reanimated the Top of the Poops quiz corpse after the Environment Agency published the latest sewage discharge figures earlier this month. These stats are given to the agency by the water sector and show how many times water firms have dumped untreated sewage into our rivers and seas, or at least how much they're willing to admit to, because as we know, the figures cannot be trusted. Go to endsreport.com for a lot more on that. But anyway, I digress. Jamie, what kind of fecal fun have you got in store for me and Tess today?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I suppose I should start off by apologising to our, our, our listeners for um, bringing this, this back. But I, I think... Um, it's about time we have come full circle now and um as as you say, there's there's one reason for this is that we've had a had in the last few weeks this this new new for want of a better word, dump of sewage data <laughs> from the Environment Agency. And um there's also been some some campaigning around sewage pollution in the run up to local elections that that kind of really stinks, I think. So you've got the Tories accusing the Lib Dems of Voting against, well, voting against making water companies clean up the rivers, and and, and these are the same Tories who you, you, you might remember who voted against some amendment to the Environment Bill that would have placed legal duty on water companies not to pump sewage to rivers. But uh, digress slightly. But Rachel, I think as as you're you're in the uh, unenviable position of being perhaps the country's leading sewage journalist. Yay, I, uh, the glamour! This the is glamour. what,
0: as a child, this is what I always dreamed of. <laughs>
1: so so for, for that reason i've had to work quite hard here to come up with something that you, you hopefully don't already already know so the, the data has been produced using my own analysis which is kind of based is using proper software gis software but i can't guarantee it's not wrong so <laughs>
0: <laughs> great caveat yeah, like exactly. all the incorrect. could be
1: wrong so, yeah. yeah so um so anyway for, for the question um which um English local authority had the most sewage discharged in twenty twenty one in terms of the total duration in, in hours. So who is who is top of the poops? Any, any any guesses?
0: Would it be kind of district council
1: size? Yeah, these are all districts or metropolitan councils. They're they're not they're not counties. Although some of them might be counties if they if they're unitaries, if that makes sense. Any any should I give a clue? It's in, in the in the southwest.
0: Um, something around Exeter. Oh no, that was the cleanest city, wasn't it, when you did the cleanest cities index?
1: Close. Dorset. <laughs> no, other way. In cow- Cornwall. 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 It's Cornwall with, with more than 89,000 hours of sewage in 2021. The other thing that I did with the data was to look at the hours of sewage per square kilometre. And when you do that, it does tell quite a different story. So you've got, um, if you do it that way, Trafford is actually then top of the poops with 153 hours of sewage. Discharge per square kilometer, followed by Norwich and then Bolton. Mm. So i
0: have to let Trafford and Cornwall fight it out for the trophy. Yeah. <laughs> so that's I
1: uh, I think our listeners should be looking out for this stuff on sort of election leaflets popping through their, their, their letterboxes any any time soon. But if you um if you want to find out more then I'll be publishing the data soon as a as a table and a map, so you can check out for for plenty more lovely sewage stuff.
0: I think we probably have the the most densest sewage coverage of any publication. Maybe we're top of the poops. Yes. (laughs) After all. Wonderful. Now I understand why Jamie's so attracted to this uh, (laughs) (laughs) area. Brilliant. Okay, thank you so much for that. That brings us to the end of the Big Green News section. Thank you, Jamie, and thank you, Tess. In the deep dive this episode, Jamie and I are exploring the move to create a new crime of ecocide. If successful, this would make the wide-scale, long-term and severe destruction of the environment an international crime. It's not a new idea. So back in the 70s, a US law expert, Richard Falk, drafted the ecocide convention, which sought to challenge irreparable damage to the environment caused by people uh, in both times of war and in times of peace. There was talk of expanding the 1948 Genocide Convention to include it and there were moves in the 90s to get it into the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. Then in 2010, UK barrister Polly Higgins, who passed away recently in in 2019, she resurrected the idea of creating this new law in her book Eradicating Ecocide and she submitted a proposal to the UN International Law Commission. So Jamie, where are we now, 10 years on, more than 10 years on?
1: yeah well actually it's um the the idea at the moment seems very much like it's it's kind of gathering a bit of momentum so and i think that the idea here that is that systematic environmental destruction becomes an international crime against peace and that the instigators are treated in the same way as war criminals so you might see for example someone like um brazil's president jair bolsonaro mm. up before the up, up in the hague over over deforestation in the amazon which has been largely fueled by deregulation or or you might see people sort of um in the dock over transboundary nuclear accidents or or major oil spill stuff like that so and and the idea i think when 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 you look now you see pictures of protests around the world this kind of term has now really captured the imagination and you have people like like the pope has kind of backed this so he's proposed um, a couple of years ago that, that sins against ecology be added to the the teachings of the Catholic Church and, and from um, our sister title End Europe there's quite a few stories now where around the idea being discussed in um, several EU member states and um, in, in Brussels as well in the European Parliament. So what's the
0: parliament's position on this?
1: Well at the moment there's a, um, a bit of a push from green MEPs to get the EU to recognise the crime of ecocide and, and this is in, in the context of um, a proposed tightening of the EU's environmental crime directive. There's some action at, at member state level. so um belgium late last year became the first eu country to legally recognize the crime of ecocide um been discussed by several other eu countries like france and sweden do they all have the
0: same definition of ecocide
1: that i i don't know that i mean i think there has been that that's been one of the kind of crunch hmm. or key kind of issues around this so the definition of ecocide is is a very important thing and there's been a bit of a um tussle around how it should be framed. So one, one of the kind of considerations around whether the definition should kind of cover something like climate change or not. And we have ended up with a, um, a definition drafted by legal experts from around the world that was published in, in mid-21, which is that it is unlawful or wanton acts committed with knowledge that there is a substantial likelihood of severe and either widespread or long-term damage yeah. to the environment being caused by those acts, mm. so that definition didn't actually, in the end, cover climate change. And it was kind—I of, think it was kind of rejected because there was a concern that including that might make it more difficult for countries and, and corporations to endorse the proposed new law.
0: So, what needs to happen now for ecocide to made an international crime?
1: For that to happen, the, the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court which effectively sets a legal framework for existing crimes against peace, would, would need to be amended. Okay. And actually that's kind of relatively straightforward. So the the head of a, an ICC member state must submit a formal amendment proposal to the UN Secretary General who would then alert other ICC members and then that would go to a plenary meeting and the majority has to agree to take it forward.
0: So if ecocide does become a crime, how will it be enforced?
1: Well, there, there are a few issues with this. One of the issues with, with, with is that... Um, it would only be binding for ICC members, so right. there are only there are only 122 countries that have actually ratified their own statute, and there, there are some notable absentees like the um, United States, China, India, and Israel. So, oh, right. um, so so there's an immediate kind of hurdle there, and mm. I think it's actually quite unlikely that a majority of ICC member states would actually pass such law as well. So, I think. It feels like we, we might get somewhere. This actually, it's probably still quite a long way to go to, to see the first example of someone, be it a company or or, or um, prime minister or president, sort of facing charges under this this proposed crime.
0: Yeah, I think Ecoside makes a, a lot of sense, especially in the times that we're living in at the moment. And I hope they manage to get more traction with it in future. But we will be watching this space closely, and we will bring you an update as soon as we have it. So that brings us to the end of our deep dive for this episode. Thank you very much for all that information, Jamie. That was very interesting. And next up, we have Gareth Simpkins and Simon Pickstone, our Chemical Brothers. Now we're back with the Chemical Brothers, Simon Pickstone and Gareth Simpkins, who've been foraging around in your carpet, uncovering all sorts of unpleasantness. Over to you, Simon and Gareth.
4: People in the UK absolutely love carpets, to the bafflement of many across the world who come to find bathrooms, toilets, wall-to-wall, carpeted. Um, I remember my both my grandmothers had carpeted bathrooms, and when I was a kid, this didn't strike me as at all weird. And looking back on it, I, I have some questions. <laughs> I don't know about you, Gareth. Uh,
3: yeah, um, I grew up with a carpeted bathroom. It was pink. It was the 80s. What can I say? I mean, the carpet actually ran up the side of the bath. I mean, in some ways in the UK, carpets make a lot of sense. We have, generally
4: speaking, quite badly insulated houses. Carpets can actually help to stop some of the drafts coming up from between the floorboards or the gap underneath the skirting board and so on. So there's a kind of logic to them. Unfortunately, there's mounting evidence that some of these carpets contain, well, unpleasant chemicals, let's say, uh, which is why they're on this podcast episode today. I remember covering back in 2018 a report by a green group called the Changing Markets Foundation, which studied a batch of 15 carpets from some of the major European carpet manufacturers. And what they found was that a majority had some presence of harmful chemicals. So these are chemicals which the EU recognizes as being potential risk to human health or the environment. That includes a cocktail of things from phthalates, PFAS, antimicrobials, bisphenols, chlorinated flame retardants. These are things which hopefully regular listeners of our podcast should begin to be be a bit familiar with.
3: Yeah. Now, none of those are uh, are there by accident. I say none, or at least most of them are not there by accident. PFAS, of course, is uh, added as a stain repellent. Uh, Flame retardants as a fire safety measure, although, of course, their effectiveness as such is somewhat controversial and uh, phthalates of course are a plasticizer what's interesting as well is if you go on the big websites
4: a lot a lot of the say stain resistant qualities of a carpet are things that are marketed to you as the consumer and you think well why not like why not have a stain resistant carpet sounds like a good idea these qualities are often marketed so you know stain resistance is a thing that you will see a lot of carpets being being advertised with. What the study found out, this 2018 study is that some of the chemicals are not there, but not intentionally added, but are there almost by accident. And it's generally because they're found in the recyc- in recycled PVC. And we're talking here about things that have long been restricted in Europe. I mean, DHP is that is is one of the chemicals that they that they mention. DHP was one of the first to be added to the EU's authorization list for for hazardous chemicals and yet it appears alarmingly often in all kinds of recycled products because pvc just just contains it because old pvc it was an, it was a thing that you added to
3: it yeah i mean the dhp of course is an endocrine disruptor uh acting as an anti-androgen and apparently it's also an obesogen in other words exposure could make you fat and this may not be such a problem for adults uh we've already we've already developed
4: fully I think health and environment groups tend to be worried more about babies and young kids. Yeah, because obviously they spend more time on the floor. So generally speaking, the the risks of exposure for young children is much higher than it is for adults.
3: Another issue here, of course, uh, must be how the material is disposed of. And I'm guessing there's a pretty enormous amount of it.
4: Yeah, I mean, one of the amazing things is just how much waste is generated through, through carpets. Very little of this is recycled, and that may be, you know, no bad thing if these carpets are all full of hazardous chemicals. There's a, there was a report, again, from 2018 by a Green Group called the European Environmental Bureau. Um, who are based in Brussels, they're less well-known in the UK, but they're one of the major Brussels green groups. Um, And they estimated that in the UK alone, we generate something like 12 million square metres of carpet um, after just a few days of use. Now, we're not talking here about households necessarily. We're talking more about Big industry events. We're talking about trade fairs, we're talking about conferences, which just gets through an absolutely enormous amount of carpet. And to put it into some perspective, 12 million square meters is about the surface area of Heathrow Airport. The waste is a big issue. And as I mean, I like to think of, of waste policy as an extension of chemicals policy um, in some ways, is that very little of the stuff is getting recycled. Most of it is either being landfilled or it's being um, incinerated and the stuff that isn't being incinerated or landfilled often gets shredded and used in equestrian venues. One of the issues here is that, I mean, for us as consumers, um, there's still a frustrating lack of clarity about how we are meant to responsibly dispose of our carpets. And also, if we're buying new carpets, it's actually quite hard to find stuff that is guaranteed to be not be containing these hazardous
3: chemicals. Yeah. Well, when when I've bought carpets from upstairs in my house, um, I've always gone for wool rather than plastic, but uh, I don't remember seeing anything like an eco-label in the showroom.
4: It is. is, They are hard to come across. I did go on the websites of some of the UK's major carpet retailers just trying to find information about sustainability credentials and so on, or even just what the carpets contain. I mean, they'll tell you, you know, it's 100% polypropylene, it's wool, plastic blend etc cetera, etc cetera. but very little about the presence of any harmful chemicals um very little about how you
3: dispose of those carpets so it's a it's, it's a definite problem um and it's a frustrating one so how do we know what's in the stuff we buy well if you've got the time dedication and frankly the inclination you can always write to the manufacturer as you have a right to know under the reach regulation That it's the, the key EU chemicals law that has been brought into uh, UK law post-Brexit. Uh, producers are obliged to tell you within 45 working days. But that only applies to the nastiest of the nasties, not substances that merely raise an eyebrow or in the pipeline for hard, harder regulation. It only applies to SVHCs, substances of very high concern under the regulation.
4: If you don't fancy having to write to the retailers yourself to ask whether there's any substances of very high concern in their carpets, there are some eco-labels out there that you could have a go trying to spot in the UK in the wild. Nordic Swan, which is a Scandinavian initiative, is quite good. And Blue Angel, which is based in Germany, Blauer Engel, also are good in that they, they products that are certified with these things can't have phthalates in their backing. Another would be there are companies that that pride themselves on producing eco-friendly organic carpets. That might be something to look into and potentially have a chat with them about what exactly they're using instead.
3: Well, it's uh, one thing I did myself was uh, replace my downstairs carpet with uh laminate flooring over lockdown two years ago and uh, I did quite a good job if I do say so myself but uh, I imagine that itself would uh, come with its own concerns uh, not least all the dust from cutting the stuff up that was a nightmare perhaps that's uh, one to address in another episode. Indeed uh, th- thanks Gareth back to you Rachel.
0: So that brings us to the end of this episode of the Eco Chamber. Thank you to our editor Jamie Carpenter and journalist Tess Colley, Gareth Simpkins and Simon Pickstone. If you're interested in hearing more about any of the stories we've been discussing today, please go to energyport.com where you'll find more detail than you could possibly ever need. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and we'll see you next time. The Eco Chamber was produced by Ade Bambala from Rethink Audio.